Today, we are going to return to a series that we began as a church way back uh, in February in the book of Acts. So as you know, our theme as a church this year in 2023 is all about the Holy Spirit who is alive in us. And when it comes to understanding and, and knowing and experiencing the Holy Spirit, perhaps the most important book in our quest for those things um, is the book of Acts. And so earlier this year, uh, we started this series in Acts. We made it all the way through chapter 12. Then we took a little break after Easter and, and talked about uh, the, 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 um, the, the gifts of the Spirit, or I'm sorry, the, the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit. Then we talked about the gifts of the Holy Spirit. We talked about the book of Daniel. And today we are returning uh, to Acts chapter 13. And Lord willing, we are going to go straight through now uh, into the book, through the book of Acts until we'll finish up probably around um, Halloween. So uh, grab your message notes, pull those out. You're going to want to open your Bible to Acts chapter 13 because Acts 13 is actually a very significant place for us to re-jump in to this story because it's the start of a whole new and kind of exciting section in the book of Acts because this is the first time that we see, like Tim and Claire were talking about, missionaries that are actually sent out beyond just their kind of Jewish regions that are sent out into all of the nations and to reach the uh, ends of the earth. And so we have kind of the, the, the core of, of the, the book in Acts 1-8 where Jesus gives his disciples uh, their, their, their marching orders. And this is what he says to them. He says, you will receive, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so that was their mission. But interestingly, it's also the outline for the book of Acts. So Acts 1 through 12 that we've already covered is is the the coming of the Holy Spirit, the starting of the church, and then just some amazing ways that the gospel begins to spread, first in their home city of Jerusalem, then to the regions around them of Judea and Samaria. So you get to Acts 13 where we are today, and what's left? The ends of of the earth. And that's where we're going to be uh, talking about over these next um, few months. Well, before we look at some of the specifics of how the spread of the gospel actually um, takes place, I want to point out that that pattern that we just talked about of Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth is kind of the natural progression of how you would expect good news to spread, right? It's kind of like a stone that is thrown into a lake and the, the, the ripples spread out wider and wider or a wildfire where a spark is lit and it spreads out farther and farther, which isn't the greatest example here in California, but you get the idea. So I want us to think about that that's how the good news spreads. But here's what I really want to do today. Pay attention to this. I really want to challenge you that that pattern may be the pattern or is in fact the pattern that God has for your Christian discipleship as well. That's the the plan that God has for your growth in him. In fact, let me just kind of illustrate this as kind of an oversimplification, but let's just talk about the way a Christian kind of naturally grows. So this is kind of the pattern for Christian discipleship, and it begins when a person recognizes their need for Christ, understands him, turns from their sin, and turns towards Christ, and that is what we call being saved, and that's kind of the starting point of this uh, Christian pattern of discipleship. First, they're saved. Then what happens is people begin to be sanctified. That's a big churchy word uh, that just is a simple meaning that means we begin to become like Christ. So in our behavior, in our thoughts, in our values, in our attitudes, Christ begins to, to transform us. That's where those, those 
fruits of the Spirit that we talked about begin to, to take hold. One of the things that happens as we're sanctified is it, we begin to recognize that this world is about much more than just me, right? And so we begin to, to serve. We serve God. We serve others. We serve the church. That's where the, the spiritual gifts that we've been talking about um, come in. In fact, this whole thing has to be led by the filling of the Holy Spirit. Part of this process is we begin to have the Holy Spirit fill up our life. But since we've got kind of an S theme going, we see that our, our life is saturated. But here's what I want you to think about and here's where the challenge is. All of this good stuff of experiencing Christ's blessing and Christ's growth, the ultimate goal of it, the end point of it is not just for us, but it's so that we can be sent out. And that's what the disciples are done. It happens to the disciples. Some of them are sent out, as Claire said, to the nations. Some of them are sent out to live right where they live in their homes, but to do it with a mission attitude that recognizes that they are there um, to serve God. In fact, let me just give you another example of this. Think about the time that Jesus spends with his disciples. Um, are any of you Chosen fans? And you guys watch the TV show, The Chosen? Fascinating thing. And one of the things that I think it does really well is it explains kind of this process that Jesus has when he spends basically three years with his disciples. And it's kind of this three-year discipleship training process. And the first step of this is it's just an invitation, an invitation to come and see, come, come and learn, come and, and follow And from the very beginning, the invitation is, and I'm going to make you fishers of men. But then if they come and see and they begin to follow, they begin this season where for three years, they really just spend time with Jesus. They get to know his heart. They, they learn about the kingdom. Jesus kind of trains them up on how to serve people, even sends them out on some short-term stuff. But again, ultimately, the goal is Jesus isn't going to be with them forever. Ultimately, the goal is, hey, you guys, you are going to go and serve. In fact, there's a scripture known as the Great Commission. If you're kind of new to faith, the Great Commission is a super important verse, and it says this at the end of Matthew 28. It says, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. That over 3 billion people that that Claire was talking about. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teach them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And surely, Jesus says, because this is a big deal, I will be with you to the very end of the age. And so the point is, Christ is preparing people to send them out. And here's what I want you to think about and honestly to evaluate your life. As you think about your relationship with God and your Christian walk, are you progressing in that? Are you moving farther and farther along in that process? Because Jesus doesn't just save us to leave us in that same place. He he calls us to, to move us forward. We're never meant to just take in blessings and take in information and just take in, take in without ever giving out. The disciples understood this. In fact, in Israel, they had kind of a natural example of this. It's known as the Dead Sea. And if you know anything about the Dead Sea, the Dead Sea takes in water from the, um, the Jordan River, but it takes in water. But the problem is there's no place for that water to go out. So it just comes into the Dead Sea and it just settles there. And as a result, it becomes filled with, with salt and, and nothing can live there. There is no life at all in the Dead Sea. 
although occasionally some tourists come by and want to float in it, um, which does happen uh, there. But for the most part, um, the disciples understood that. So anyways, I share all that about this idea that God's got us moving on a pattern towards mission, not to make you nervous, but because if we're going to understand Acts 13 through 28, which we're going to be looking at for these next few months as a church, there is some really foundational theology that we need to understand. And what I'm about to say here is pretty simple, is pretty basic, but is essential theology if you want to understand the book of Acts, and especially chapters 13 through 28. The key theology is this, you guys, God loves the whole world. The whole world. He loves you, and he loves me. He gave his life for us. We celebrated it in communion but he doesn't love just you and me. He loves all 8 billion people on this planet. You will never set eyes on a person that God does not love and God did not send his son for. So that's foundational theology. God loves everybody, the whole world. And a corollary of that is this, that our God, because of that love, is a missionary God. God always sees more. God always sends God always leaves the 99 so that he could find the one. God always waits for the prodigal to just turn the corner so that he can run and wrap his arms around him. Why? Because love is a part of his core. And so with that in mind, we're going to open our Bibles up to Acts 13, and we are going to see how the good news spreads. That's kind of our question this morning. How does the good news spread? And it starts with a church that has a theology that is just, that theology is just kind of a part of their DNA. And let's jump into this uh, because we need to keep moving. Acts 13 verse 1 begins like this. And it says, now in the church at Antioch. Antioch is a, uh, a very strong, healthy church uh, up kind of in the northern reaches of where the gospel of God has gone in Syria. It says, now in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, just like the spiritual gifts that we talked about. And they were Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manain, who had been brought up with Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. And while they were worshiping there at the church, worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them, Barnabas and Saul, and sent them off on what is really the first global mission. And I love those first three verses because Luke, who's the author of Acts, is really just kind of given the details. This is how it went down at our church. But he also, as he, he talks about how they chose and sent out the first missionaries, also gives us a key clue to this idea of how the good news spreads. And the first thing we see is that good news spreads through what we call Great Commission Churches. Great Commission churches. So we read the Great Commission that we would go into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them, teaching them to obey um, the Lord. So Great Commission churches. Um, So that describes this church in Antioch. This church in Acts 13 is kind of one of the leading churches that we're going to read about um, in the New Testament. And what do we know about this church? Well, there's actually kind of three pieces of information, at least, that are revealed in those first three verses that we read. And the first one is this, is that they were a diverse church. The church in Antioch was very diverse. They'd experienced the power of the gospel to break down racial barriers, 
socioeconomic barriers, all kinds of things that could divide. They were experiencing uh, unity. In fact, there's mentioned five leaders in the church. If you add John Mark, um, who we're going to see in a little bit, there's six. Um, John Mark is a servant, we're told. But listen to the five people that are mentioned there, and let's just kind of go over. The first one they mention is a guy by the name of Barnabas. Barnabas was one of the early Christians. He was Jewish by background. Some believe that maybe he was even became a Christian at the day of Pentecost, but he was an early follower of Christ, and he was a loved and respected leader in the church. He was an encourager. He was generous. He built people up, and so that was Barnabas, a a longtime Jewish Christian. Next, there's a guy by the name of Simeon. Simeon is called Niger. Niger literally just means black, and so likely they're saying that Simeon was from Africa. It's been suggested that, that Simeon or Simon was Simon of Cyrene. There's the guy that comes out of the crowd to help carry Jesus's cross. And some say, well, maybe this is this guy. That's kind of legend. We don't know that. But the thing we do know about Simeon is that he was uh, African, as is the next guy we read about, who is Lucius of Cyrene. Cyrene would be what we call today about Libya, kind of North Africa there. So Lucius was also African. Then we have uh, Manan, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch. So Herod the Tetrarch went on to become one of the the top, top, top four leaders over all of the Roman Empire. So this guy is a big deal, and he was raised um, with him. The phrase brought up translates to something like they were foster brothers or raised under the same roof, but the point is, whatever their relationship was, Manan had an opportunity for a lot of influence and a lot of wealth and a lot of power. He was raised in the same house as Herod, yet he chooses a very different path from Herod, and he becomes one of the followers of Christ and is an early leader in the church, uh, probably wealthy in his background. And then the next is a guy by the name of Saul. We know Saul because in just a few verses, he's going to start to take on his Roman name, which is Paul. And Paul was a Roman citizen. He was raised in Tarsus, but he was also Jewish. He was a Jewish Pharisee to the point that he persecuted the church. And so think about that list of the leaders that are just listed there. I don't know about you, but I love that. Because for one thing, it shows that the ugly sin of prejudice was not a part of the early church. It was not their differences that brought them together. It was their unity in Christ. It was not their differences that defined them, I should say, but it was their unity in Christ that defined them. And not only was that a powerful testimony to the city around them, but these are people who had already navigated some of those cultural differences, and they've done it with love and curiosity and respect. Why? Because they understood that God loves the whole world. God loves the people like me, and God loves the people different from me, and they understood this, and so that became a key thing for them to be the first church that sends people out into the world, and so they lay hands on Paul and Barnabas, and they send them out, and that brings us to the next thing uh, that we see about this church in Antioch, is they were also a very generous sending church, so not only they put their money where their mouth is and send these guys out, but they were generous by sending out the best and the brightest, So if you think about it, they send out Paul and Barnabas, and these guys were a part of their core leadership team. And if you had a guy like Paul, who was, you know, a great speaker and a great leader, and if you had a guy like Barnabas, who was this kind, encouraging, pastoral person, and they were a part of the preaching team at your church— you would not want to send them out. You would want to keep them for yourself, right? You would would want to keep the best people you got. 
but not them. They send them out. They have this generous um, sending attitude. They say they lay their hands on them and they send out these giants of the faith, not to keep them to themselves, but to share them with the world. And I was thinking about this, and you should know that First Baptist Church has a long history as, a, I would say, a really great mission church. They, they give generously, they support missions, they do all kinds of things. Um, this has always been the case uh, at this church for many, many, many years. Um, under Steve Neiman, Newman's leadership, that even expanded all and more. He really opened our, our eyes and began to, to, to expand our mission's impact. But for a long time, I remember thinking so clearly that our church gave a lot to missions and supported a lot of missionaries, but it had been a long time since God had actually raised up missionaries from our church. We supported other missionaries that came to us, but we hadn't sent any out. And for years, we, we prayed about that. We prayed that God would raise up some of the best and the brightest among us and that they would not stay, but they would go. And now looking back over the last 10 years, it's amazing to see the way that God has answered that prayer. Let me just show you some of those answers to prayer. This is Jamie Martinez. Uh, Jamie was raised in our church, and now she serves um, in uh, New Zealand, working with specifically underprivileged kids. This is Janessa Davis. Um, Janessa Davis spent a lot of her childhood here in this church. Her parents are worshiping in the the chapel service right now. Uh, Janessa was called to reach um, uh, college students at UC Riverside. This is May. Megan Urich or Megan Seaspray. Um, her family is right here with us as well. Megan and her family serves in Thailand. This is Carol Alexander. Carol was a part of our church staff for many years. She got to the age where most people retired. She said, I'm not retiring, but I want to become a missionary to India. And so Carol, Carol spends half of her year here and half of the year um, in India, leading, uh, helping lead the, the Grace English School. Um, this is Michael Brogna. Michael is a, a part of our church here. Uh, his home base is here in Lodi, but he goes out all around the world a number of times through the years to train church leaders, um, really in all different kinds of places. This is Juan Ibarra. A lot of you guys know Juan. Uh, Juan uh, does smile sometimes, uh, but he, um, I'm not sure if he's here today or not. (laughs) Sometimes he doesn't smile, Uh, but he is leading a great ministry uh, down in Mexico called Youth Reach near Guadalajara. Um, Chio Tesaro, some of you know Chio. He really uh, found Christ and came back to Christ through the ministry of this church just in the last several years. God called him to missions. He went and served with YWAM down in Mexico and is getting ready to go full-time down to Mexico. And then you just met Tim and Claire Marker who are serving in the Philippines. And those are us. Those are our people because this church wants to have a value that God loves the whole world and our God is a missionary God. And so we support and we send those out. The third thing we see about this church is that they were a church that was led by the Spirit. They were diverse. They were generous. They were fasting and praying. They were doing all the right things. But it's when they were led by the Spirit that they actually laid hands and sent them out. And so um, that's what we see. So... Off go Paul and Barnabas. They lay hands on them and they send them out. And their first stop is about 60 miles from the mainland. Here's a little map. They go from there in Antioch uh, of Syria. And their first stop is the island of Cyprus. It's about 60 miles to the west of the mainland there. And this is what we read in Acts 13, verse 4. It says, so the two of them, Paul and Barnabas, sent on their way by, uh, by the Holy Spirit. They went down to Seleucia and sailed from there to Cyprus. When 
they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. John was with them as their helper. They traveled through the whole island until they came to Paphos. There they met a Jewish sorcerer and a false prophet named Bar Jesus, who was an attendant of the proconsuls, like a governor, the proconsul Sergius Paulus. The proconsul, an intelligent man, sent for Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to hear the word of God. But Elimas, who's the sorcerer, and that is what the, his name means, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. So right away, they go to Cyprus and they get this great opportunity to share the gospel with like the governor of the island. The guy's name is Sergius Paulus. He's an intelligent man. He really wants to hear the word and wants to hear the message. But there, uh, this guy, Sergius Paulus, has in his kind of his court, who is a sorcerer. He was a Jewish sorcerer, which is really an oxymoron. You can't be Jewish and a, a sorcerer. His his name used to be Bar Jesus, which means son of Jesus, not our Jesus, but it was kind of just a common name there. But apparently he's left that behind because now he goes by the name Elimos, which just means sorcerer. So in the Roman culture, and really in most ancient cultures, there was a lot of belief in superstitions and spells and magic and, and all kinds of things. They concocted curses that you could curse your enemy and it could keep you safe. One of the most common curses that they would put on a person is, we, w- we wish that you would be blind. And so we, we curse you in a way that you're going to lose your sight. So Elimos was big in this. And when he heard that his boss might want to trust Jesus or learn about Jesus, he knew that that was going to cut into his business, right? That was going to cut into his superstition and his fear-mongering that he had. And so he opposes the good news going out. This is where the story continues. It says, verse 9, Then Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked straight at Elimas and said, You are a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that is right. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. And you just kind of wonder, what did Paul really think about this guy? He says, you're full of all kinds of trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? Now the hand of the Lord is against you. You are going to be blind for a time, not able to even see the light of the sun. Immediately the mist and the darkness came over him and he groped about, um, and he, he uh, sorry, I lost my place here. And he groped about seeking someone to heal him or to lead him by the hand. When the proconsul saw what had happened, he believed, for he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. So that brings us to the next point of how the good news spread. And the good news spreads when there are people who have a whatever it takes attitude to get the message out. Whatever it takes, we're going to do that to get the message out. So that's an interesting thing that we just read, and I think that the driving point of that story is really the passion um, to make sure that Sergius and Elimas hear the, the gospel, and they have a chance to respond. Why? Because Paul and Barnabas were driven by a theology that God loved everyone. So when Elimas tries to get in the way of the gospel going forward, that's when Paul really lays into him. And I have to confess, I've kind of wrestled with how to talk about that passage where Paul speaks so harshly to him, um, because I love that he stands up to evil, 
And as Christians, we're called to stand for what is good and to stand up against evil. Um, but I also, I don't know if that's a, a great model for us today to tell someone that they're a child of the devil and that God's going to curse them um, and they become blind. That doesn't seem to be um, the best way in our culture these days. In, our, in this argumentative, uh, pro, uh, argumentative day, kind of that critical approach tends to push people away. Um, but Paul wants to make sure that the good news goes out. Let me just give you a couple things to think about here in what Paul says to him. First of all, he's speaking the language of the locals, and the language of the locals was one of power and signs. So there was almost kind of like in the Old Testament between God and Baal, there's this battle between whose God is stronger. And this is Paul saying, you're about to see how strong my God really is, which would have been kind of the language of the locals. There was also an element of justice. Elimaeus had, certain, uh, Elimaeus had certainly been a part of, of wishing or bringing blindness on people. And so Paul at some level is saying, you're about to see what you've done to other people. But I think there's something else that's going on there. And I think that there's hope that this blindness might turn him to God. Because if you think about the book of Acts, who was the last person that we saw who is struck blind and has to grope around in the darkness? It's Paul. It's Paul. He meets Jesus and is blinded by the light and he becomes so blind that he gropes around. Now, Paul's blindness led him to turn to Christ and to know Christ. And so maybe there is even some hope that in the blindness, Elimas might see the goodness of God. But the point is that, that, uh, that, that, that he stands up uh, to this. And uh, when Sergius sees what happens, he becomes a believer along with the others. And they become the first members of First Baptist Church of Cyprus there in the Mediterranean. Because don't you know it was called First Baptist from the beginning? Probably not. Probably not, but I don't know. All right, the next thing we see, because we are just moving along, is Acts 13, and we are going to wrap up here in just a minute. Acts 13, verse 15, verse 13, uh, we read this. After they leave Cyprus, it says, from Paphos, Paul and his companions sailed to Perga in Pamphylia, where John left them to return to Jerusalem. This is John, also known as John Mark, eventually the guy who's going to write the Gospel of Mark. Um, from Perga, they went to Pisidian Antioch. On the Sabbath, they entered the synagogue and they sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the leaders of the synagogue sent word to them saying, brothers, if you have a word of exhortation for the people, please speak. And so that brings us to really the final thing that we see is after they leave Cyprus, uh, they sail back to the mainland, and then they make their way up to this city. You see kind of that red dot up there called Pisidian of Antioch, which is now in modern-day Turkey. And when Paul and Barnabas go, this is a growing city. In fact, they're kind of trying to become the Rome of the East. They're built on seven hills, like Rome was built on seven hills. They had a huge temple to Caesar built on the highest hill. And so Paul and Barnabas follow their normal pattern, and they go first to the synagogue, and they sit down, and then because they're visiting rabbis, they're invited to stand up and address the synagogue. And don't you know that Paul and Barnabas are going to give them the good news about Jesus? In fact, this is the last point about how the good news spread. It spreads by... by um, by gospel-centered Great Commission churches. It's spread by standing up uh, for, for truth and, and doing whatever it takes to get the, the message out. But the good news spreads when the gospel of grace, forgiveness, and new life 
is clearly proclaimed, and that's their message. Now, unfortunately, we don't have time to look at at Paul's 25-verse sermon. It's kind of a long sermon. This is actually Paul's very first recorded sermon. By now, Paul's been a Christian for about 10 years, so he certainly preached a lot of sermons before, but this is his first one that is recorded. By the way, I remember my very first sermon. I think I've told some of you guys about it before. Um, I, I was invited to preach in the, the church and uh, where I was a brand new youth pastor. They said, you've got about like 30 minutes to, to preach. And um, I, I got all ready and I stood up and I got really nervous and I lost my place and I was done in like 10 minutes. And I just sat down and that was the end of the service. But uh, not Paul. Paul tends to go a little long. Um, but this is actually a sermon when I teach on preaching and how to preach a sermon. Paul's sermon here is a really good one. And for a couple reasons. Let me just show them to you real quick. The first one is this, is that Paul's message is anchored in Scripture. When he has a chance to address them, it's, it's rooted in Scripture. It's not Paul's opinion. It's not Paul's fluff. He gets right to the stories of Moses and Samuel and Saul and David. But it's also, as he always does, it's centered on a promise, and this promise that there was going to be one who was greater than Saul and Moses and Samuel and even David, and that was Christ, who was the truer, greater Messiah to come. Paul's sermon shows their need. He says, you've been trying to obey the law, but as great as the law is, you can never please God by just following the law. And so you have a need because all of us sin and fall short of the glory of God. And the answer to that need is in Jesus. He highlights that Jesus is the answer by talking about the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Look at verse 38 here, just to get a little sample, a little taste of what Paul preaches to him. He says this, he says, Therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin, a justification that you are not able to obtain under the law of Moses. And so Paul's sermon is this masterful message, and it's so clear and, and, uh, that Jesus is the, the answer to their problems. And, and so they're interested enough that they invite Paul to come back the next week. And if you read on in that story, and I hope that you do later this week, you, you see that it says the whole city comes out to hear Now, some of the Jews are going to be kind of opposed to this right from the beginning, and so they start uh, to raise a a problem. Uh, But while they're doing that, the chapter ends like this. This is what we see happens in this city when the gospel of of good news and forgiveness and changed life takes place. Verse 48 says this. We're going to wrap up the chapter like this. When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad, and they honored the word of the Lord, and all who were appointed for eternal life believed the word of the Lord spread throughout the whole region. And isn't that the point? In verse 52, the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. So why? Why were they so filled with joy? Why were they so filled with the Holy Spirit? Because you guys, that's the way the Christian life is supposed to work, right? God did not show us his love and his grace so that we could keep it to ourselves. But God's got you on a process, wherever you are. You may be brand new to all of it. If you're brand new and you put your trust in Christ, he's got you on a process. And that process is to grow in him, to experience his blessings, yes, but also to be sent out, maybe to the ends of the earth, but certainly to wherever you are, to reach out in your home, in your workplace, in your neighborhood, in your school with the message of hope. Let's pray.
Father, thank you so much for a chance to, as a church, to jump back into the book of Acts and be reminded of the way that your Holy Spirit works to send people out. And so, Father, we've rushed through a lot of this scripture here this morning, but I pray that this would be at the heart of First Baptist Church of Lodi. Father, that we would be driven by a core theology that understands that you love the whole world and that you are a missionary God, and so we want to be like that too. I pray, Lord, that you would encourage and strengthen and bless each person here today by your spirit. We love you and we give you this day in Christ's name. Amen.